This is the fourth of six podcasts from the Royal Irish Academy History of Emotion series. The speaker is Dr. Morris Casey on Solidarity. Hi, my name is Morris Casey. I'm the historian in residence here at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum in Dublin. My research interests lie in histories of transnational radicalism and the Irish abroad during the 20th century. This Royal Irish Academy podcast series explores how a history of emotions approach can enrich the history of locations, buildings and places. In my contribution, I want to look at revolutionary solidarity as a feeling of radical belonging. I'll explore this emotional experience through a series of spaces common to the international radical experience of the 1920s and the 1930s, namely the border between Soviet Russia and the wider world, the public meeting and the prison cell. Kaspar Braskin, a historian of radical internationalism, described solidarity as not only a political weapon in the struggle, but also an alternative identity, culture, emotion, and even a goal in itself. It is Braskin's suggestion that solidarity is an emotion that I want to explore in this podcast. My understanding of emotion is influenced by Sarah Ahmed's argument that rather than see emotions simply as psychological dispositions, we must consider how emotions work in concrete and particular ways to mediate between the psychic and the social and between the individual and the collective. Researching the world of interwar radicalism often presents the question, how did these activists keep going in the face of such unremitting political hostility? Part of the answer, I believe, is that they found ways of transforming ordinary spaces, like bookshops, meeting halls, trains, boats, and even sites of incarceration into locations of radical belonging. Interwar radicals, including those in Ireland, felt connected to a wider world of struggle, ideals and comradeships on an emotional level, and this connection transformed how they perceived the spaces around them. Let's travel to our first location. It's 1921, and we are travelling by train across the border dividing the Soviet state from the capitalist world beyond. This is a frontier that loomed large in the interwar radical imagination. The rise of Soviet-style socialism and the former territory of the Russian Empire had a profound impact on how international radicals perceived their world. For the first time in the 20th century, Marxism was not simply a theory to be encountered in books or meeting halls, but the guiding principle of a territory that you could visit in person. Or M. Fox, a British Labour journalist and husband of the Irish author Patricia Lynch, evocatively described the moment of transition from the capitalist world to the socialist world in his 1937 memoir, Smoky Crusade. In one section of the book, Fox describes the experience of traversing the land route across Europe into Soviet Russia in 1921. Craning our necks through the window, we saw a red flag waving an invitation from a tall staff, which marked the boundary of the Soviet Union. Many of those on the train had endured terrible privations on their journey. Most had come without passports and with little money, hidden in barrels and behind cases in ship's holes, concealed among the baggage on the trains, helped by friendly sailors and transport men. Some had worked their passage in various ways. For the first time they could relax their vigilance, for they were among friends. As the train steamed past the frontier flag, the rousing strains of the Internationale sung by people from all lands, burst out. When Fox wrote that the red flag assured these nomads that for the first time they were among friends, he suggested how passengers 
felt a sense of belonging to a radical project transformed the space surrounding them. An ordinary train carriage reverberated with socialist song, making it a sight of triumph, and a red flag marked a moment in which the passengers could feel a profound sense of relief. These travellers did not simply change time zones, they transitioned from a capitalist world, where they were chased by the agents of a system they wanted to overthrow, to a socialist world, where they were, at least in theory, delegated a role in the building of a new society. To cross this threshold was to move from isolation into communion, from persecuted to exalted, and from being a minority to being in power. That transition was one that could be traced on a map and in legislation as much as it could be felt. Bridget Studer has described such fusional moments, those rituals of revolutionary life, such as waving a red flag or singing revolutionary hymns, as experiences that allowed radicals to feel part of something much grander than their own individual lives. But you did not need to travel to the Soviet Union to feel yourself in tune with the revolutionary state. You could, for example, recreate that experience at home through attendance at public meetings. In 1946, Ethel Manon, a writer with Irish ancestry known for her radical politics and unconventional personal life, wrote a book called Comrade O Comrade, which follows the story of Larry Lanigan, a Galway farmer who was recruited by a roaming British communist in a comic pub and shipped off to 1930s London to learn Marxist-Leninist theory and practice. Over a series of short chapters, Larry meets every leftist tendency imaginable, each leaving him bored, cold and confused. But towards the end of the novel, as Larry is brought to attend a meeting of anti-colonial activists from around the world, the pure Irish peasant has an epiphany. Something stirred in Larry, Manon writes. This was something he understood. This was something you could feel. This was not one set of initials versus another, but to do with the writing the terrible weight of injustice in the world. The Arabs and the Indians and the Africans wanted their own countries for their own people. They wanted to be free. If you were an Irishman, that was something you could understand, whatever manner of Baca beyond, Gassoon and Galut you were. Here Manon provides a novelist's answer to the question, why do we gather together to express indignation? Sure, it's a means of expressing our collective strength, demonstrating to the powers that be that we are many. But attendance at demonstrations is also about revealing to ourselves that we are not alone. Other people think like us, act like us, and share our ideals. In other words, we feel a sense of belonging. This is something that even the Galway peasant, Larry Lanigan, could understand as he watched anti-colonial activists transform a public square in the heart of the empire into a site of resistance. Perhaps what made radical solidarity as an emotional experience particularly important in sustaining radical morale in the interwar years was how this sense of belonging could be accessed even in the most hostile of locations, for example, a prison cell. In the 1934 poem, Tom Mooney Walks at Midnight by the proletarian poet Mike Gold, the Irish-American prisoner Tom Mooney, a world-famous radical prisoner locked up in San Quentin prison, achieves a kind of communist astral projection. Mooney opens his cell door, glides through the steel and concrete, unlocks the gate to the world, Gold writes. Mooney's spirit in the poem travels to the Ruhr and finds two pale miners lying on a straw bunk. Mooney travels then to China and finds a sentry in a Red Army camp dreaming of communism. He meets his male-born mother in San Francisco, who tells him, The blood of the proletarian centuries is in you, the voice of the famine, the heart of our poor, hungry Ireland. Providing him with some mammy's encouragement, she declares, It is better to be in jail for the working class than in the White House for the capitalists. The final stanza finds Tom Mooney back in his cell. 
It is then battles are lost and won, Gold writes. It is then a worker views his world, tramps the dangerous roads of birth, finding the far-flung comrade armies. Gold's poem creates a fantastical image. A prisoner soaring from his cell and travelling the whole world in the space of a night. In its narrative, we can read a metaphor for the existential quality of radical interwar solidarity, the means by which it allowed the isolated, the outcast and the imprisoned to feel themselves part of a wider world, even when their immediate surroundings were as cold and hostile as a prison wall. Revolutionary solidarity provided interwar radicals with a sense of belonging that was, in and of itself, a form of emotional sustenance that sustained revolutionary initiatives in years that saw catastrophic reversals in leftist fortunes. How do you explain persistent commitment among revolutionaries to simply existing throughout the 1930s? What kept them going? Surely, it was in part due to that emotional experience of belonging that could be felt on a train to Moscow, at a public meeting, or in a prison cell, which connected the isolated few to a collective experience, rendering their surroundings hospitable to radical dreaming. In our own time of social distancing and societies increasingly riven with inequalities, rediscovering that sense of radical belonging that sustained revolutionaries across the world during some of the 20th century's darkest decades may prove a worthwhile project. As many adapt to working from home, some might also look to the interwar past for lessons on how to organise the revolution from home.